Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word always stands, it always remains. Grass will come and go, flowers will come and go, but your word endures forever. Help us then to receive it as what it is, your enduring word. And we also ask, Father, that in our receiving it, you'd give us hearts to embrace it with uh, an obedience and a devotion to you so that you would be exalted in all of our lives and all things that we do. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's another passage of Scripture I'd like to read to you. It's in John chapter 4. I'd like to read this to you because the passage that we just read in Exodus chapter 20 commands Israel, one, not to make idols, and then two, to make an altar. And really it's about worship. This... Um, Word from the Lord to Israel in Exodus 20 is setting up Israel for living a life of worship to the one true God and then to worship him properly. And of course, if you're paying attention at all to what has been commanded to Israel, you think, well, I don't offer sacrifices and I don't build any altars, so what am I to take away from this as it regards worship? Well, Jesus in John chapter 4 gives the definitive word about New Testament worship. He's speaking to the Samaritan woman by the well, and it's a story that many of you know and are familiar with. And the topic of conversation comes up about worship, and the woman speaks to Jesus in John 4, verse 19, and says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She basically brings up a debate that's been going on about the mechanics of worship and the location of worship. And it was, would have been a common debate. The Samaritans would have thought there in Samaria was the location where worship was to happen. The Jews would have thought Jerusalem. And so the question on the table was really well articulated by this woman. And you would stand on one side of the debate or the other. You would think, Yes, Samaria, no Jerusalem, or you say, yes, Jerusalem, no Samaria. That was kind of the end of discussion about this topic of worship. But Jesus comes at it from a totally different angle, and he can do that because he is the Son of God who has inaugurated a new era. And so in verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, 
The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus declares there that the location of the worship is not in a place geographically, it is rather the attitude and disposition that the worshiper has towards God. It must be in spirit and truth. And so as we consider this text in Exodus chapter 20, which is really about worship, we have to keep in mind that we're not talking about the mechanics necessarily of worship because Jesus has said the word about this and he declares to us our worship is in spirit and in truth. For Israel, however, as they are coming out of slavery in Egypt, having been given the law of God in the Ten Commandments, and now on the cusp of receiving more words from the Lord in the matter of laws that they have to keep, they are given this preface to what's going to be seen in Exodus 21 and 22 and 23, which are going to be really an elaboration of the Ten Commandments, and it's going to take the Ten Commandments and funnel them into everyday life for the Israelites. It's going to show them that God's law is going to have everyday ramifications for their society. But before chapter 21 comes, and 22 and 23, of course, is the end of chapter 20, which has this instructions about idolatry and about altars. And really, when you unpack those, it's ultimately about worship. And I think this means that the laws that are to come are to be set in the context of an entire life that is lived devoted to God and lived in worship to him. That the whole of the lives of the Israelites were to be given over to him in a life of worship expressed through every detail of their life. And so this passage about idols and altars leads us to worship. And when we consider worship, the principles that really come out of this passage show us that we need to worship the right God, that's the word regarding idolatry, and we need to worship the right God in the right way, and that's the word about altars. We need to worship the right God, and we need to worship the right God the right way. Israel has been brought out of slavery in Egypt, been brought to Sinai, and they've heard the Ten Commandments given from Mount Sinai. And you recall that they were, when they heard that law, they trembled in fear in response because they heard the law and they saw the great majestic display of God's power at the top of Mount Sinai, the cloud, the fire, the lightning, the thunder, and it led them to trembling. And as a response to this, in Exodus 20, verse 19, they call on Moses and say, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. And they withdraw from the presence of God. They move far away. 
So God has given the law. The people tremble in fear. They move far away. They set up Moses as the mediator. The mediator Moses takes that responsibility on his shoulders. And even this text that we're in in Exodus 20 shows that because the Lord speaks to Moses and Moses is to speak to the people. But the, the question kind of stands out of the fact that God, before he gave the law, said that he was calling Israel really unto himself to be a treasured possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And how are they to be this people when after hearing this law, they withdraw? They don't even want to be close to this God. How are they to live a life of worship when they are distant? Well, I think that this text answers the question to some degree after they've received a mediator, now they receive instructions about how their worship can proceed with God present. And their worship can proceed with God present because God provides a means by which he can interact with sinful people, namely through sacrifice on an altar. So as Israel receives this instruction about not pursuing idolatry and about worshiping the right way, they are led then into a life lived in worship to God as they receive further instructions, as you'll see in 21, 22, and 23, that touch every area of their lives. They are going to have all of their life governed by this righteous and holy God. The laws that are going to come are laws about slavery, about loss of material property, about restitution, they're going to hear about murder and about um, how to deal with pretty much any kind of law-breaking that happens. And as they receive all of this, it's all under the context of a life lived completely devoted to God, a life of total and complete worship living under his law. So as we unpack these few verses here, I want us to consider what it really has to say to us about worship, because before you get into the nitty-gritty details of a life lived in worship, you need to understand some fundamental things. And the first thing that we need to understand is regarding that law about idolatry, and that says to us that we need to worship the right God. We need to worship the right God. We can also put it this way, we could ask the question, why do we need to avoid idols? Why do we need to avoid idols? This is what the Lord said to Moses in Exodus 20, verse 22. He says, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me. This, of course, should evoke in the minds of the Israelites that they've heard something like this before. This is the first and second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Now, anytime God says anything, it's important. Anytime God says something twice, it's really important. And so Israel should have their ears perked up and thinking, okay, this is absolutely crucial to our life lived as God's people. No idols for Israel. There's some reasons for this, of course. 
that idolatry should have no presence in their lives. Why should they, and really we, why should we avoid idols? Well, I think there's several reasons that are here in this text, and I'll give you a few of them. One is because God in his glory cannot be seen. We should not have any idols because God in his glory cannot be seen. Notice the connection between verse 22 and verse 23. The Lord reminds the people, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. And then immediately following that, he says, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me. There's no formal connection between those sentences. There's no words like for or so or therefore or because I talked to you with you from heaven, you shall not make gods of silver. Yet, for these sentences to be in such close proximity in the same context with no obvious variation in theme dividing the two verses, we conclude there is a connection between them. Between the Lord speaking to them from heaven and there being no idolatry. And the connection is that Israel there at the mountain, the foot of Mount Sinai, they did indeed see um, the cloud, they saw the fire, they saw the lightning. They saw no form there. They saw no form of God. They only heard his voice. And as they heard his voice and saw no visual manifestation of his form, they saw a display of his power, but no form there. They were to derive from this that this God who is so great and so mighty that he can only cloak himself in clouds so that his true glory cannot be fully displayed to people lest they die, who is so great and so mighty that when he speaks his law, they are so pure that it causes the people to tremble. The only conclusion can be from that experience, what could I possibly ever make that could come even close to representing the glory of this great God who has spoken to us from the mountain? And of course, there is nothing. There is nothing that their hands could concoct and manufacture that would come even close to resemble the greatness of the God who has just spoken to them. What carving could you make that could possibly represent him? What carving could you make that could possibly add to him, supplement him, complement him, image him, improve him, or excel him. So God reminds them. He spoke to them from heaven. His complete majesty cloaked in the cloud. While the text here doesn't make the connection explicit, Deuteronomy chapter 4 does. Deuteronomy chapter 4 does tell us it was because they didn't see any form of God that they should not make any idols. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 15, it says, Therefore watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air. No image. 
could possibly represent the greatness of the God who only spoke and did not show himself from that mountain. The command here in Exodus 20 was explicit that they should not make gods of silver or gods of gold. Silver and gold, then as now, would be precious metals, exceptionally valuable. It would have been the best materials that they had on hand. But even their best, even their most valuable, was not a sufficient material that they could use to represent some form of this God who spoke to them from heaven. It's not as though gold could any way enrich him or silver describe him. It only at best be a very poor reflection of him. But God in his word is someone who is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. You can take the most valuable thing that this planet has to offer, try to form it into the most beautiful shape, even, even then it cannot come even close to the value, purity, and majesty of the God which it is supposed to represent, supposedly. God, when he has the tabernacle constructed, does use a lot of gold, bronze, silver, and it is to be elaborate and ornate. And I think that is to picture that God is exceptionally valuable and worthy of praise, but no thing is made in that tabernacle that represents an image of him or his form. God in his intrinsic glory cannot be imaged by gold or by silver. So because God is so glorious, he cloaks himself in unapproachable light, and no image that we try to make can represent him. So if you want to worship God, the right God, you cannot do so by trying to bring him down to our level, even with the best materials we have. Another reason that we need to avoid idols in order to worship the right God is simply because God says so. God says, you shall make no gods of silver to be with me. And if God says it, that should be enough, shouldn't it? I find it important to be often reminded that the basic posture of our lives is to be one of humility. Humility that basically says, God, you are God, and I am not. God, you are in charge, and I am not. God, you get to say what goes, and I don't. It's a posture of humility that fundamentally directs our life, and if you get that simple thing right, won't so much of the rest of your life be in order? Sometimes it might look like just taking that posture is this unthinking, unintelligent kind of approach to life. But humility does not involve a checking of the intellect at the door. Rather, I think one of the smartest things that you can ever do is to acknowledge that there is in fact a mighty God who has created all things. And one of the dumbest things that you can ever do is try to reject that obvious truth. How many people have failed at this level of simple intelligence to take that which is most obvious and say that the inverse is true? 
that there is no God, there is no maker, there is no one who made all of this elaborate creation in which we dwell. And when you acknowledge the basic fact of the existence and reality of God, and you learn that this God speaks, and you really have no chance of successfully contradicting him. Thank you. Once in a while, words work. And you have no chance of successfully contradicting him. Isn't it just as intelligent not to contradict him? Not to fight against him, but rather to concede that he has all authority and that you will bow to him. Perhaps the most important observation that we make as we read the pages of Scripture is that it is the Lord God who is speaking. And in this case, in Exodus chapter 20, it is him speaking to Moses, who will then in the role of a prophet, speak to the people of Israel. Now we receive the scriptures, which is the very word of God, and it does not lose one iota of the authority of God. God speaks, God commands, desires to believe, and desires to obey. I think that is one of the most intelligent decisions you can ever make. This does not mean, by any stretch, that God's commands are not good. As if we just concede, okay, God, you're more powerful than I, and so I give in. Now, the truth of it, the fact, the truth of it is that God, who is in charge, is also good. And the commands that he gives are good. And so we don't check our intelligence at the door because when we see that the God who created everything is also the God who rescues, and the God who rescues is also the God who instructs, then we ought to submit our lives to him completely and totally. That's the intelligent thing to do. The very kind of God that we would want to submit to is the kind of God that is really there. The rescuing God, the saving God, the holy God. And so we... We avoid idols, we avoid idolatry, simply because he says so. But when we acknowledge that, we put ourselves really on the best path and course of life and eternity. This leads to the next reason that we're not to make any other gods, not to have any idols in our life, whether material or immaterial. Whatever occupies our, our fullest attention really and our, the object of our worship is an idol. Paul says covetousness is idolatry. So we continue on thinking through we need to worship the right God. And we avoid idolatry because God will not collaborate with other gods. I think this is um, such an important truth for our understanding of who God is. God, the real God, does not play well with other gods. This is what it says. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me. He doesn't tolerate sharing the platform. He doesn't tolerate sharing the stage at all. 
He wants exclusivity in his role as God. He didn't collaborate with anyone else in the rescue of Israel from Egypt, and he will not collaborate with any other God in his governing of Israel over or governing of Israel. And as pretty as a God of silver or a God of gold might be, he will not share his glory with anyone. So, we avoid idolatry because God will not collaborate with other gods. Few of us would, would ever want to say that we would be willing to put God aside completely. We understand, I think, fundamentally, yes, there is one God. We need to worship him and obey him, trust him. There are some people who do come to the point in their life where they just completely reject God. Some of you know the, the heartache of that by watching those close to you take that course in life where they just completely cut out any connection to God in their life. But for those who are here, it's not likely, probable that you are inclined to say, I'm done with you, God, and I'm going after this other way of living. We are, rather, more often willing to place God on a shelf in our life where he has maybe even a place of prominence. And we say, that's the God who is going to keep me from hell. And that's the God who's going to get me to heaven. And I love him for it. But then when we come to other areas of our life, the details of our life, the worries and anxieties of our life, we want to put other things up on the shelf next to this God. God takes care of eternity, but I'm going to have other things that take care of here and now. I need more security in life, and so I need, um, I need to have this God of, of money and safety, security right here on the shelf so that I'm more comfortable because, you know, God takes care of heaven and hell, but right now I need just a bit more than that to get by. Or we have the, the idol of relationships that goes up on the shelf, and we say, well, I'm going to exclude every kind of relationship in my life that doesn't really help and benefit me personally because, well, it's just too hard. And uh, God doesn't really know about relationships because he says things like, love your enemies. That just doesn't, that doesn't float with my well-being my safety. And so I'm going to put up this other God of, of uh, better relationships that I want there. God's got eternity. But money's got now. Friendship's got now. Whatever you want to put there. But we realize pretty quickly, as soon as we realize those things are idols, they fail you, don't they? When you try to put something up there that's going to make your life better and you devote your energies to those things and you put all your trust and confidence to those things and you try to lean into those things, they end up failing you. They don't really provide the support and security and safety that you want, maybe temporarily and here and there, but ultimately you still are filled with worry, still filled with anxiety, you're still filled with grief 
and sorrow and woe because those things, you know what? Do nothing for you. They're idols. And by definition, an idol cannot do anything because it is a false god. And God says, he shall not make gods of silver to be with me. He does not share that shelf with anyone. And so it is ours to just wipe that shelf off of anything except for the one true God and let him have total prominence in every area of our life, whether it be relationships or finances or whatever. He gets it all. He gets priority in everything. He gets to own it all because he does not share the stage or the shelf with anybody else. And so we avoid idolatry in order to worship the right God because God will not collaborate with any other gods. And it really leads into the next reason already mentioned. We avoid idolatry because idols can never do what God can do for us. Verse 23, You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. We're forbidden to have idols with God, but we're also forbidden to make idols for ourselves. It's almost a bit ludicrous that that statement needs to be there. It ought to be somewhat self-evident that a God ought to be the one who makes us. And if you find yourself being the one who makes a God, there's something wrong right from the start. It's not the way it's supposed to work because then you are more powerful than the God that you've made. And then if you submit yourself to the power of your God that you've made, then you've already failed because it doesn't have any power greater than you have. Shall not make for yourselves gods of gold. God in forbidding idolatry forbids us from having for ourselves something that cannot do what we need it to do. And in reality, what more do we need than what God offers to us in himself? What else is there for us? He's not just the God who gets you out of heaven. (laughs) Sorry, I don't know what I'm saying. He's not just the God who gets you out of hell and into heaven. He's also the God who governs and orders every aspect of your life. He does indeed govern your finances. He governs your relationships. He governs it all. And he knows how to handle it so much better than anything else or anyone else. So really the the question again at the start of this is, are you, are you worshiping the right God? Because if you don't have the right God to worship, then your worship is completely bankrupt from the very start. Not only do you have to have the right God and avoid idolatry, but you also need to have the right God and worship him in the right way. And that's what this business about the altar is about. You need to worship the right God in the right way. Right after the Israelites are told through Moses, 
you shall not make any gods. Then they're told in verse 24 about what they should make. They need to make an altar of earth. Don't make gods, but make an altar of earth. This is implicitly a, a reminder that they already have a God, and they need no others, but they do need to relate to him rightly. An altar is a structure upon which sacrifices were offered to a deity. Many altars are, have been unearthed through excavations, archaeological research that are uh, in the land of Palestine. Uh, you can see images of them. and um, They're basically structures of stone. Uh, oftentimes they are cut stone that are um, ordered in a cube-like fashion. Sometimes they have these horn-looking things on the top of them. Uh, there would be um, altars all through the land, many of them pagan altars to other gods. And in this case, the Lord is instructing Israel, make an altar of earth. Make an altar of earth. This would be just gathering up together soil. And maybe it would include these uncut stones, just kind of raw stones, not not touched by a tool of man, and they might create the perimeter of this altar, and in the middle would be earth upon which you could dig out a hole and offer a, a sacrifice there. There's a place of recognizing the presence of God through a sacrifice to God that would bring you into his presence rightly. Israel was going to be given instructions um, just in a few chapters here in Exodus, about an altar that would be created for the tabernacle. And this would be a more elaborate altar. It would be constructed by a man of skill, gifted by the Spirit, who would use bronze to create uh, a beautiful altar. And that would function as the altar for Israel and eventually uh, come to greater fruition at the temple. But there would be sanction that God gives for other altars made of earth, not so uh, well constructed as the altar of the tabernacle, where the Israelites could offer sacrifices from time to time when he sanctions it. And this is the kind of altar that's being referred to, and it's a very simple altar, an altar of earth and sometimes upcut stones. Now I know, again, as we think about this, you think, okay, I've never built an altar I'm never going to build an altar. What do I do with a passage like this? I need you to have set in your mind a passage from the New Testament. I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 13. It'll help frame our understanding of how we relate to something like this. Hebrews 13, verse 9 says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Do you hear that? This is talking to New Testament saints, and it says, we have an altar. Right now, we have one. Verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, 
Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We have an altar. What is it? It's the cross. It's the cross of Christ. He is our perpetual altar. Not that he's re-sacrificed, but his one-time atonement for sins is enough to forever act as the altar by which we can approach God. And then as a result, we have sacrifices that we give, not animal sacrifices anymore. The blood atonement of Christ is enough blood spilled for all the sins of all who would repent and believe in him for all time. The sacrifices that we now offer are sacrifices of praise to this great Savior who has rescued us. We have sacrifices of doing what is good to honor the God who has saved us. So we have an altar and we have sacrifices. And I think that this text in Exodus 20, which refers to a physical altar, really lays out the mindset of God regarding the kind of altar that he views as necessary in the life of the kinds of people who would come to him. And so let's go back to Exodus 20 for a moment in our In our last few minutes, consider the kind of altar that we need. The kind of altar that we need is an altar established by God's direction. Again, this is God's instruction. He says, an altar of earth you shall make for me. And he says, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. He's given the instructions about how this altar is to be built. It can't just be made any way that the Israelites want to make it. I think this is such a a timely principle for us because there is um, a tendency within the church at large to embody this like excessive desire for freedom in worship, which would say, I can come to God basically however I want and call it worship as long as I feel it in my heart in the moment. And so there's this this mindset that sets us up as the one who directs the worship of God according to our own standards and our own desires as if we can set up the altar and offer whatever kinds of sacrifices we want to make. But no Israelite would ever be allowed to create their own altar however they want it to look. Worship was not to be done however anyone felt like doing it. Do you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 13 when Saul was instructed by Samuel to wait for him to come before he offered sacrifice. And Saul waited seven days. And he decided, that's enough. I'm going to take things into my own hands. And he offers sacrifices. And then Samuel shows up. Do you remember what Samuel said? Here's what he did not say. He did not say to Saul, Saul, great job following your heart. 
in doing what you felt like doing. Great job worshiping God in your own way. Read what Samuel read or said to him. Saul lost his kingship as a result of this. You cannot come to God on your own terms, in your own way. God set the parameters for this altar that they were to worship God at. Worship was not to be done however anyone felt like doing it. Worship of God in our day is often driven by people who look at the world and want to drink the spirit of the age and feel that if it feels right to me, then it must feel right to God. But our wily hearts seek to serve ourselves. Much of what passes for worship in our modern landscape is nothing more than looking at what the world is doing, that, doing loving that, slapping the name of God on it, and calling it good. So as we look for what kind of altar we need to come to God through, it cannot be an altar of our direction. It has to be an altar given at God's direction. And then we also see that we need an altar, not just that's given by God's direction, but an altar that is undefiled by human ingenuity. Notice God says in verse 25, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. They were to make a a very simple altar, just the dirt pushed together in a pile. Or if you get rocks, make sure you don't cut them. Don't touch them with any of your tools, God is telling them. You think of, well, what about the tabernacle? They use tools and they make an elaborate altar. Yes, but even then, The one who is doing the work is a skilled workman filled with the Spirit of God and his wisdom to do the work, and he can only do it by the exact instructions given to him by God from heaven. So even then, it is not an altar created by the human ingenuity. It's according to exactly how God wants it to be. And so for Israel, they're told, if you're going to build one of these earthen altars, don't bring your tool anywhere near it and try to be clever about this. Simple altar, unhewn stones. Don't bring your tool and wield on it. Because what's going to happen if you bring your own cleverness to this altar? What's the result? God says you profane it. That means you take this altar which is supposed to be holy and set apart for worship unto God and becomes defiled. It takes that which is supposed to be, un- be holy and makes it unholy. And it excludes it from being acceptable to God. And if it's defiled or if it's profaned, then any supposed worship that's happening there is not worship. So too, with any worship that we seek to bring to God through any altar of our own conjuring, our own human ingenuity, if we slap our own tools on it, and try to make it clever in our own eyes, and it still looks like worship on the outside, guess what it's not? It ain't worship. Worship, true worship, must not be touched by human ingenuity. It must be according to the instruction 
of God. And I'm not speaking, by the way, of these external things like screens and speakers and amplification. That's not what this is about. This is about soaking in the philosophies of the world and then then letting them corrupt the kind of worship that we bring to our God. We have no tool on the altar of God. Then there's this other instruction in verse 29, you shall not go up by steps to my altar. You've seen those pictures of of ziggurats, which are these pyramid-looking like structures that have long walkways or steps up to the top where they would offer sacrifices. It's referring to something similar to that, not necessarily on that scale, but some kind of structure that would be high up and it would be a high place and they would have to walk up it. Well, that was basically a, a pagan practice to their pagan gods, and God wanted no part of it in his worship. But attending that kind of worship also was often this ritualistic nudity that the priests would display. And often attending that would be some sort of cultic prostitution accompanying this pagan worship. And God effectively says that should come nowhere near the worship given to this one true and holy God. The ways of the world should not be included in true worship. Priests, when they're given their priestly garments, the detail is so precise that even the priestly garments is to include undergarments for them to try to steer them away from any kind of replicating of the horrific worship at pagan altars. We must worship God, the right God, in the right way. We're out of time, but I need to wrap up with this final point. The whole reason for an altar is to offer sacrifice. So the instruction is given about these burnt offerings and peace offerings. A burnt offering would be the whole of an animal that was burned up and consumed. A peace offering would be a a part of an animal, some of the insides that was burned, but the rest of it would go to the priests and then uh, the rest of, there's more uh, other parts of it would go to the worshiper to share as a meal, basically a fellowship meal with God, not that God would physically eat, but it would represent communion with God. The burnt offering making atonement for sin and then the peace offering being something that brings together fellowship with God. You remember, we have an altar. We have the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, where atonement for sin was made, where Christ offered all of himself to pay for our sins. And through his sacrifice, we have peace with God. What happens when we bring our human ingenuity and our own desires to that altar? We corrupt it with the first mark of our own tools upon that cross of Christ. It's perfect how it is. It is complete how it is. He has made full atonement and brings full reconciliation through his cross. It needs no additions. It needs no subtractions. It needs no complementary additions to it at all. It is perfect in how it is. And we worship God through Christ and through Christ alone. He's all there. He's all for us. 
And God marks out this place, he says, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. It was at that place of true worship that God's presence would be shown and his people would have fellowship with him. We have that place, don't we? We have the cross of Christ through which we come to God and we have his presence and we have his blessing. What more can we ask from this God who gave his son to us? We have it all through the cross, all reconciliation, all blessing right there. So we worship the right God and we have to worship him the right way through the cross of Christ without bringing our own cleverness to it, leaving it in his hands for what he has provided for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how you have blessed us through Christ. He is our sacrifice. He is our Savior. Help us to worship you truly through him in no other way. Lord, rid us of any idols in our life and rid us of any cleverness that we think that we can bring to our worship of you. Help us to worship you truly, spirit and truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.